scratches and pops is my dad Frank Beccarello. Thanks sweetie and thank you for tuning in to episode 134 of Spinning My Dad's Vinyl. After this episode we will be two-thirds of the way through a great Jack Benny hosted box set from my dad's collection. The six records of the set had Benny reminiscing about the era when most families were crowded around their radios instead of their television sets for their news and entertainment. This record had the same subjects on both sides as episode 92 of this show. So, get ready for a severe contrast as we hear radio broadcasts about our country at war and the radio comedians who kept us laughing during it with volume 134, Golden Memories of Radio, part four. Abner, will you come over here and help me put this sign on the door? Why, sure, Lom. Just hold this nail in place while I whack it with a hammer. For quiet, homespun humor with a country flavor, I think you have to turn to Lum and Abner as the foremost example. In fact, I can't think of anything on television today that has captured this particular kind of format. The comedy was comfortable and funny. Lom, suppose you hold a nail in place while I whack it with a hammer. You think I'm crazy? The trouble here is we're suffering from an oversupply of whackers. Have you ever seen me hit anybody on the thumb with a hammer? Yes. Last summer when Opie Cates helped you put up the screens. That was just a little tap. Tap? You smacked that thumb so flat it looked like he's carrying around a pancake flipper. Why, he didn't even holler. He let out such a beller, all the fellers at the sawmill knocked off for lunch. <laughs> you stop exaggerating and hold that nail. Granny. Lom, you, you couldn't hit that nail no matter if your whole life depended on Oh, now, on be it. quiet. Huh? Just This hold... is my page-flipping finger here, Lom. Be Just careful. Just hold the nail in place. Okay, here goes. How was that? Not bad. Just aim it two more feet to the left, and I think you'll have it. (laughs) Trouble is, the top of the nail is too small. You couldn't drive that nail if I stuck it in between my teeth and let you hit me on the back of the head. (laughs) Don't give me any ideas. Now, just hold it in place. This time, I'll keep my eyes open. Good. Think one of us ought to know what's going on. You ready now? Yeah. Here it goes. Idiot, why don't you watch what you're doing? Abner Peabody, I didn't even touch that hand. I know you didn't. You got the one I had in my pocket. (laughs) One of the most nostalgic names in the American theater came to radio and leaped to success with the devilish character she created. Her career has been portrayed on Broadway in the smash musical Funny Girl. Who else but Fanny Bryce as Baby Snooks? 
Mm-hmm. I was just trying to help you, Dad. Why must you torment me this way? Why can't you just leave me alone when I feel like playing the piano? Because I want to play, too. You don't know how to play. I can lay. <laughs> oh. Do you really mean that, Snooks? Yes, Dad. Because nothing would please me more. And if I teach you to play, will you practice faithfully every day? Mm-hmm. All right, darling. <laughs> Sit here beside me. <laughs> Who knows? You may turn out to be a child prodigy. Who knows? Now, before I give you the first lesson, suppose we try to find out just how much natural ability you have. How? Well, see if you can pick out a tune. Whatever music comes into your head. All right. We can forget the prodigy business right now. <laughs> that was from the Baby Snooks Show, an American radio program starring comedian and Zegfield Follies alumna Fanny Bryce as a mischievous young girl who was 40 years younger than the actress who played her when she first went on the air. The series began on CBS September 17, 1944, airing on Sunday evenings at 6.30 p.m. as post-toasties time for sponsor General Foods. The title soon changed to The Baby Snooks Show, and the series was sometimes called Baby Snooks and Daddy. Fanny Bryce, as mentioned by Jack Benny, was the inspiration for the Broadway show Funny Girl. Barbara Streisand made one of the biggest debuts in the history of films playing Fanny Bryce in the movie version of Funny Girl. She won an Oscar as Best Actress of 1967 for her efforts. Before that, we heard an excerpt from Lum and Abner, an American network radio comedy program created by Chester Lauk and Norris Goff that aired from 1931 to 1954. Modeled on life in the small town of Waters, Arkansas, near where Lauk and Goff grew up, the show proved immensely popular. In 1936, the town of Waters changed its name to Pine Ridge after the show's fictional town. Okay, why this record for this episode? As an extremely amateur radio historian, I've really enjoyed listening to the records in this box set. It includes commercials, variety and skit shows, serial programs, along with sports and news highlights from the early parts of last century. With radio, you needed an imagination to turn what you were hearing through the speaker into visions in your head and everybody had their own interpretations. On this record, we hear the famous radio shows that made us laugh. And next up, we'll hear some of the live radio news that made us cry. Flash, Washington. The White House announces Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor. Radio reported the eyewitness accounts. Hello, NBC. This is Bert Silent speaking from Manila, and this time I've got a real scoop for you. Manila has just been bombed. In fact, right now it is being bombed. And without warning, Japanese bombers started bombing Fort William McKinley, Nichols Airfield, and the RCA transmitting station. At nine minutes past three o'clock, without warning, right now, the moon is shining uh, absolutely full. It's, it's too pain. Uh, stand out like mirrors. And uh, there's no wonder that an enemy bomber would pick out any spot around this part of Manila tonight. It isn't the fault of the blackout. There isn't a light shining any place. 
But old man Moon just wouldn't stay back now. For the first time in history, the entire nation would listen to a United States president asking Congress for a declaration of war. Yesterday, December 7th, 1941, a date which will live in infamy. The United States of America was suddenly and deliberately attacked by naval and air forces of the Empire of Japan. It will be recorded that the distance of Hawaii from Japan makes it obvious that the attack was deliberately planned many days or even weeks ago. The attack yesterday on the Hawaiian Islands has caused severe damage to American naval and military forces. No matter how long it may take us to overcome this premeditated invasion, the American people in their righteous might will win through to absolute victory. in our armed forces, with the unbounding determination of our people, we will gain the inevitable triumph, so help us God. Congress declare that since the unprovoked and dastardly attack by Japan on Sunday, December 7, 1941, a state of war has existed between the United States and the Japanese Empire. That series included the Bombing of Pearl Harbor Bulletin, the Manila Bombing Reports, and Franklin Delano Roosevelt's speech where he spouts his famous, a day that would live in infamy line. It was a day that would propel the United States to war with Japan and then soon Germany and the rest of the Axis. But the days these were broadcast also sent the nation into days and months of uncertainty. How did the Japanese get so close? Would they do it again? Were there already enemy soldiers within the country's borders? It was the radio reporters trying to answer those questions while broadcasting live from both Europe and the Pacific. And we'll be hearing directly from the war in a few moments. Okay, let me tell you about my dad's vinyl I have chosen for this episode. Jack Benny, Golden Memories of Radio. On the Longines Symphonette Society label, it's a six-vinyl LP compilation mono box set format. It was released in 1969. Its genre is non-music, and its style is radio play. 
Now, we will hear record four of the collection, which is sides four and nine. These records were numbered to be used on that long, self-releasing spindle. You would hear sides one through six without turning any of the records over. Then you would turn the whole stack over and hear the rest of it. And we will hear nine pieces of the recording broken into five parts. And I will continue to read from the enclosed booklet, Recollections of a Radio Writer by Albert G. Miller. 30 years before actual astronauts were probing space, my typewriter was sending back Buck Rogers on interplanetary radio journeys five times a week, accompanied by the dazzling Wilma and wise old Dr. Hewer. Poor Buck was being constantly jeopardized by the villainous space louse Black Barney. The hardest problem at the beginning of that series was to create the sound for Buck's rocket ship in flight. The solution, when the engineer found it, was simple. A mic placed on a chair near a ventilator picked up a continuous purr of air. It never occurred to us that spaceflight would be soundless, but the audible purr behind the dialogue gave listeners the illusion of supersonic motion. One of my challenges during the early 1930s was to adapt a book-length story every week for the Eno Crime Club. That distinguished actor Brian Don Levy played both heroes and villains for several years in those scripts before heading for Hollywood and stardom. During the Depression, radio prospered for the reason that most citizens, lacking the price of outside entertainment, stayed home at night. Throughout these bleak years, the Magic Box poured out a treasure of comedy and music, provided by Bing Crosby, Paul Whiteman, Kate Smith, Rudy Valley, the Clico Club Eskimos, and the Maxwell House Showboat, and the Longines Symphonette, directed by Michel Piastro, dominated the field of light classical music with my friend Frank Knight delivering the commentary. I remember hundreds of enchanted hours listening to funny girl Fanny Bryce as Baby Snooks, teasing her baby brother Robespierre and getting walloped for it by her aggravated daddy, and listening to waspish Alexander Walcott as the early bookworm, Jack Pearl as the Baron, and comedians Jack Benny, Eddie Cantor, Ed Wynn, Joe Penner, Burns and Allen, Stoop Nagel and Bud, and the beloved Fibber McGee and Molly. Most clearly of all, I remember Fred Allen because I was one of his apprentice writers. Fred entered radio in 1932 with the Linnet Bath Club Review and followed that show with Town Hall Tonight, to which I was assigned to contribute ideas for comedy sketches, such as the one Long Pan Burlesques. No man ever wrote for Fred, only with him, for his creative common genius was unmatched. Although the great man had scant respect for ad agency executives, the sight of an old friend from vaudeville days at Liberty turned his heart to jelly and opened his wallet. At the end of each dress rehearsal, these impecunious artists would line up to shake Fred's hand, in which a banknote was always closed. Without question, one long pan had one great heart. And by the way, impecunious means broke. Okay, let's see what prices this record is being sold at on Discogs.com. $12.99 for the highest, $1.75 for the lowest, for a 708 average and a 750 median. It was last sold on May 2nd, 2023, for that low of $1.75. I found copies on eBay from six to sixteen bucks and on Amazon from three dollars, I'm sorry, eight dollars and thirty-five cents to $204. 
Now, my dad's collection is in really good shape. The albums don't have much crackle on them because they are protected by this nice plastic-lined paper sleeves in a very durable box set. I guess Jack Benny wasn't responsible for paying for it. Uh, the box is in great sh uh, shape. This set doesn't look like it was played very much. Uh, just for one of the many, I'm sure my dad grabbed just to collect for what was on it. I will value my dad's vinyl collection at $10. Now, this next session is a little longer than normal, but I thought it was intriguing. First, a translated Morse code message from troops as they were being captured. Then, the interview with the operator years after he returned from the war. General Douglas MacArthur was ordered to Australia while Major General Jonathan Wainwright was given the task of delaying defeat for as long as possible. General Wainwright held Bataan until April 8, 1940, when he surrendered to an overwhelming force of 200,000 Japanese troops. But the island fortress of Corregidor held out until May 6th. Then, Army listening post in Hawaii heard these last drama-packed radio code broadcasts. They're not near yet. We are waiting for God only knows what. How about a chocolate soda? Not many. Not near yet. Lots of heavy fighting going on. We've only got about one hour, 20 minutes before... We may have to give up by noon. We don't know yet. They are throwing men and shells at us, and we may not be able to stand it. They have been shelling us faster than you can count. We've got about 55 minutes, and I feel sick at my stomach. I am really low down. They are around now, smashing rifles. They bring in the wounded every minute. It is a horrible sight. We will be waiting for you guys to help. This is the only thing, I guess, that can be done. General Wainwright is the right guy and we are willing to go on for him. But shells were dropping all night, faster than hell. Damage terrific, too much for guys to take. Enemy heavy cross shelling and bombing. They have got us all around and from skies. From here it looks like firing ceased on both sides. Men here all feeling bad because of terrific nervous strain of the siege. Corregidor used to be a nice place. It's haunted now. Withstood a terrific pounding. Just made broadcast to Manila to arrange meeting for surrender.
talk made by General Beebe. I can't say much. Can't think at all. I can hardly think. Say, I have 60 pesos you can have for this weekend. The white flag is up. Everyone is bawling like a baby. They're piling dead, wounded soldiers in our tunnel. I'm vomiting. Arms weak from pounding key long hours. No rest. Short rations. Tired. I know now how a mouse feels. Caught in a trap. Waiting for guys to come along. Finish it up. Got a treat. Canned pineapple. Opening it with signal core knife. My name, Irving Strobing. Get this to my mother. Mrs. Minnie Strobing. 605 Barbie Street, Brooklyn, New York. They are to get along okay. Get in touch with them soon as possible. Message. My love to Pa, Joe, Sue, Matt, Carrie, Joy, and Paul. Also to all family and friends. God bless them all. Hope they be there when I come home. Tell Joe, wherever he is, give him hell for us. My love, you all. God bless you and keep you. Love. Sign my name and tell my mother how you heard from me. Stand by. The radio operator who sent those dots and those dashes and that fateful message was Corporal Irving Strobing. Now, miraculously, he survived the battle and many years as a Japanese prisoner of war. Very fortunately, he's with us now, and he is to tell us exclusively what happened after that last dot and that last dash were transmitted from Corregidor. Mr. Strobing, tell us exactly what did happen. Well, Mr. Knight, the transmission was terminated when I was told that a Japanese tank was approaching the mouth of the tunnel. I thought it would be better for me to get further back in. We remained in the tunnel until the Japanese entered and took charge. We were then lined up in Malinta Tunnel itself and in a kneeling position were tapped on the shoulder by a Japanese officer using a saber and thus formally became prisoners of the emperor. You mean even under such circumstances they went to that degree of protocol? It was unexpected, but it did happen. 
Now, did you ever realize, Mr. Strobing, that your radio message from Corregidor was broadcast all across the country? No, Mr. Knight, uh, I really didn't. I knew that certain portions of it had definitely been received, but had no idea of just what dissemination was being made. What were the conditions, and how did you manage to survive such an ordeal? Well, Mr. Knight, the term of imprisonment lasted 1,216 days. The first portion being spent in the Philippines in a camp at Cabana Tawan until November of 1942 when I was removed to Japan itself. A 27-day voyage in the bottom hold of a Japanese freighter. Upon our arrival in Japan on the 27th of November in 42, I was put to work on a construction project, excavating by hand what was to be a dry dock and later pouring the concrete. After about a year and a half, I was transferred to another camp where we made little rocks out of big ones and also stoked the furnaces in a Japanese steel mill, and that lasted until September 5th, 1945, when we were liberated and returned to the United States. Mr. Strobing, if I remember correctly, while you were still on Corregidor, you tried very hard to get a message through to your mother. Tell us about that, will you? Well, the final transmission from Corregidor was a message to my mother and the other members of my family. It was received in Honolulu and relayed to Washington and the Army was good enough to have a colonel deliver it at home. Mr. Strobing, you're a very lucky man, and we're ever so grateful to you for being with us today. You just heard the last broadcast from Corgador and an interview with the radio operator who sent it. Time now for this episode's interesting side note, and it has to do with the fake feud between two radio comedy legends and one memorable moment, which you'll hear in a moment. Since 1932, Jack Benny long amused radio audiences with his continuing gags, including his thrifty spending habits, his perpetual age of 39, and that dreadful violin playing. Fred Allen also began his career in radio comedy in 1932 when he began the show The Lint Bath Club Review with wife Portland Hoffa. Allen was famous for ad-libbing and cracking up the audience with running comments on the jokes. After child violinist Stuart Kanan's performance on Allen's show, Fred Allen commented that a certain alleged violinist, meaning Jack Benny, should hide in shame. Although the initial quip from Fred Allen was an ad-lib, the two met with their writers to expand the gag to their respective old-time radio shows. For a decade, the two exchanged insults on both men's shows so convincingly that fans of either show might have believed they had become blood enemies. In fact, the two men were good friends and admired each other greatly. Benny and Allen often appeared on each other's shows during the feud, both in acknowledged guest spots and surprise cameos. On one Christmas program, Allen thanked Benny for sending him a Christmas tree, but then added that the tree had died. Well, what do you expect, quipped Allen, when the tree is in Brooklyn and the sap is in Hollywood? 
Benny in his memoir, Sunday Nights at 7, and Alan in his memoir, Treadmill to Oblivion, revealed that both comedians' writing staffs often met together to plot the direction of the mock feud. If Alan parodied the Jack Benny program as the Pinchpenny program, Benny responded with a parody of Town Hall Tonight with Clown Hall Tonight. One memorable period during the feud came during Alan's parody of the popular quiz show Queen for a Day. Calling the sketch King for a Day, Alan played the host and Benny a contestant who sneaked into the show using the alias Myron Proudfoot. He was trying to get around the rule that employees of the network weren't allowed to win prizes, and Benny being so cheap, well... To the surprise of absolutely no one, Benny won the contest and was king for a day. Alan presented him with some cheap gifts. The final prize was to have Benny's suit cleaned and pressed at that very moment. Two men grabbed Benny while a third man pulled off his pants in front of the studio audience who couldn't believe what they were seeing. With the audience laughing hysterically and Benny yelling for his pants, there was a small problem. One that could get Alan in trouble with his sponsor, Standard Brands. That problem was one more commercial had to be presented. With only seconds left, announcer Kenny Delmer had to read the closing commercial for Tender Leaf Tea so fast the listeners could barely keep up with him. Now, you won't hear that commercial, but in this next cut, you'll now understand why the audience is laughing so hysterically. Well, all right, let's try out my new show. Here he is, the man who will change one of you nobodies into king for a day, the old kingmaker himself, Red Allen. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you. And here is our first eager contestant. Your name, sir? Myron Proudfoot. <laughs> You look like a chap I know. I'm not interested in your friends. Start giving things away, brother. <laughs> what is your occupation, Mr. Proudfoot? I'm a chaplain in a bakery. <laughs> what does a chaplain do in a bakery? I put wings on angel cake. <laughs> How long have you been in the cake business, Mr. Proudfoot? Long enough to know a crumb when I see one. When I see one. <laughs> Get sarcastic, Mr. Proudleg. The name is Proudfoot, and make with the question. All right. Who was the sixth president of the United States? John Quincy Adams. John Quincy Adams is correct, and Mr. Myron Proudfoot is king for a day. Well, Your Majesty, how do you feel? Never mind how I feel. What do I get? Immediately after this program, Your Majesty will be guest of honor at a banquet at Hamburger Heaven. <laughs> Tomorrow morning, through the courtesy of the sanitation department, you will be guest conductor on the 11-5 garbage run through the Bronx. At night, in your almond robe, you will be whisked by bicycle to Orange, New Jersey, where you will be the judge in a chicken cleaning contest. <laughs> I'm king for a day! And that's not all! There's more? Yes, we are going to start right now to make you look like a king. Your suit is a little baggy, king. Boys, take his majesty's coat off. Wait, wait. On our stage, we have a Hoffman pressing machine. Now, wait a minute. Wait a minute. An expert operating the Hoffman pressing machine will press your trousers. Now, wait a I've been waiting to catch you like Alan, this. Alan, you haven't seen the end of me. It won't be long now. I want my 
the feuding Fred Allen with Jack Benny. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. The two sides for this episode were each historical in their own right. Side 9 with the incredible recordings of war and its aftermath. The cuts with the Morse code message and its contents still give me the chills. Then to hear the man who sent that message talk with hardly any emotion about his horrific experience reminds me of the veterans of that war. Nobody thought they did anything special. They had a job to do, and they did it. And side four with the early popular comedy geniuses. It's almost as if I was sitting in front of an old radio to listen to them as if I was even alive during that era. Now we're going to hear the entertainer that definitely connected the two sides. Bob Hope went to war. He was one of the military's biggest morale boosters. And if you want to hear or read about his account of how close he came to death, I highly recommend the book, Don't Shoot, It's Only Me, Bob Hope. I mentioned it in an earlier episode. This was a book I borrowed twice from my dad, and now that he's gone, it's one that I treasure in my own collection. So, let's hear Hope taking his comedy to the troops. And speaking of characters, there's still another graduate of radio around today. And I do mean around. Around every Army, Navy, and Air Force base in the world. The old ski knows himself, Bob Hope. Thank you, fellas. No whistling. We'll have the place loaded with dogs. Thank you very much. Thank you. Well, here we are at the Pasadena Army Service Forces Regional Hospital. That's an ambulatory phrase, meaning don't step out the back door, Joe. It's a 100-foot drop to the sewer. Yes, sir, I've done a couple of shows in hospitals recently. I feel so much safer when there's a doctor close by. And this is a wonderful spot for a hospital. When a battle fatigue, face, uh, fatigue case comes in and they can't calm him down and make him sleepy the usual way, they just give him a pass to go into Pasadena. <laughs> Pasadena, that's the town where the curfew goes on at 12, noon. It's a great place to live. Pasadena is a very quiet town. In fact, every time a soldier takes a walk, the Chamber of Commerce appoints a man to follow behind him and oil his GI shoes. <laughs> Somebody ought to oil my tongue for a while. And Pasadena is really a ritzy town. They're so fussy here, the mayor meets the Greyhound buses at the city limits with a can of flea powder. So, Ritzie, I put a nickel in the Pasadena jukebox to play one meatball, and it came out one caviar croquette. <laughs> I saw one beautiful rich debutante here this afternoon, though. Boy, she was really loaded. She had money, too. <laughs> but these soldiers aren't impressed with the local register here in Pasadena. When they go out with a girl, they don't care about who's who. They want to know what's what, what's what, what's what, what's what. This hospital used to be a hotel called the Vista Del Arroyo. That's a Spanish term meaning why sergeant. The young lady was just admiring my cast, and we got so engrossed, we must have strolled into Hollywood without knowing it. Bob Hope and some 
military inside jokes. Now, before we say goodbye, I have a quick cut to share by one of my favorite voice actors. Can you remember the day you bought your first automobile? I can remember driving mine home, for I had my friend Mel Blank with me. Mel and I still work together, and I still have the Maxwell. Told you it was quick. Mel Blanc as Maxwell the car. And just in case you don't know who Mel Blanc was, he was known as the man of a thousand voices. He's regarded as the most prolific actor to ever work in Hollywood with over a thousand screen credits. He developed and performed nearly 400 distinct character voices with precision and a uniquely expressive vocal range. The legendary specialist from radio programs, television series, cartoon shorts, and movies was rarely seen by his audience, but his voice characterizations were famous around the world. Blank, under exclusive contract until 1960 to Warner Brothers, voiced virtually every major character in the Warner Brothers Looney Tunes and Merry Melodies cartoon pantheon. Characters including Porky Pig, Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Elmer Fudd, Tweety Bird, Sylvester the Cat, Wile E. Coyote, The Roadrunner, Yosemite Sam, Sam the Sheepdog, Taz, the Tasmanian Devil, Speedy Gonzalez, Marvin the Martian, Foghorn Leghorn, Pepe Le Pew, Charlie the Dog, among others, were voiced by Blank. His will specified that his gravestone read, That's all, folks, the phrase with which Blank's character, Porky Pig, concluded Warner Brothers cartoons from 1937 to 1946. And how's it go? Good morning, Sam. Good morning, Ralph. <laughs> and there you have selections from a box set filled with broadcast history. So thanks for tuning into Volume 134, Golden Memories of Radio Part 4, however you did. If you want more information about this show, head over to spinningmydadsvinyl.com. I'll be back next week with all my skips, scratches, and pops for Volume 135, South Pacific. Until then, go with the flow, my friends.